Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Star Trek pin. Is today a special Star Trek holiday or something? How the hell would I know? I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. 11 score, 18 years ago. Wait, what, Greta? (laughs) Because it was 238 years ago that we became a nation. So, you know, if you divide by 20 and take the remainder... Yes, Independence Day math. Okay, I gotcha. Yes! American woman! Today on Nerdette, we bring you stories of women too often relegated to the footnotes of American history textbooks. Audacious ladies like Nellie Bly, who uncovered the awful conditions for the mentally ill in this country by going undercover in an insane asylum. Bly was a reality journalist more than a century before reality television or anything like that was ever invented. And we'll take a trip to Wisconsin to hear from a member of Georgia O'Keeffe's family about how he remembers the mother of American modernism. I knew her more as uh, a person than as an artist. She was a great storyteller, and she had a wicked sense of humor. Those stories and more right here on Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This is Nerdette. Thanks for listening to this 4th of July holiday special. You'll hear a lot about founding fathers on the 4th of July. But today, we'll get to know the mothers of movements. Let's call it a patriotic rejection of the patriarchy. You know what I did just then? It was stupid. (laughs) I minimized the importance of the statue that was dedicated to Nellie Bly, an extraordinary woman to whom we all owe a great deal. You don't know who she is, do you? She risked her life by having herself committed to a mental institution for 10 days so she could write about it. She changed entirely the way we treat the mentally ill in this country. Yes, Abigail. In 1890, she traveled around the world in 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds, besting by more than one week Jules Verne's 80 days. She sounds like an incredible woman, Abby. I'm particularly impressed that she beat a fictional record. If she goes 21,000 leagues under the sea, I'll name a damn school after her. When it comes to historical figures being memorialized in this country. Women have been largely overlooked. 
Nellie Bly is just the tip of the iceberg. I couldn't possibly hear about the rest of the iceberg right now. Those, of course, are clips from our favorite America-themed TV show, the NBC drama West Wing, which, if I'm honest, is the first time I heard about Nellie Bly. It's also the first time I truly felt patriotic, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) At the age of 23, Nellie Bly went undercover to expose the terrible treatment of the mentally ill inside an insane asylum. I think at the very least, it's fair to say that doing something like that would take some spunk. You know what? You got spunk. (laughs) Well, I hate spunk. (laughs) To figure out what gave Nellie so much spunk, we called Gene Lutz. Lutz recently edited a compilation of Bly's work called Around the World in 72 Days and Other Writings. Lutz is the co-director of the Gender and Women's Studies program at Villanova. She's been fascinated with Nellie Bly since childhood. Nellie Bly was an adventurer who was also a writer, and she always stood up to authority in all kinds of ways, and I think that really appealed to me. There is something about her story that just seems larger than life to me still. It doesn't feel believable in some ways that someone could have so much confidence in herself when she didn't even have that much reason to have confidence. She wasn't well-educated, but she was so sure that she had something important to say and that her experience mattered that that seemed to carry her through, even at times when it would seem that she would not have made it. The stunt that made her big break into New York City journalism, the moment when she pretended to be crazy to get checked into an insane asylum. You just can't even believe that anyone would imagine that that was a good idea to do that. So dangerous. How old was she when she did that? She was in her early 20s. I imagine, especially back then, the level of exposure a place like that would have gotten otherwise. The vast majority of the public had no idea what was happening in these insane asylums. Oh, that's true. The asylum that she got into, the Blackwell's Island Asylum in New York City, was known as this warehouse for mentally ill immigrants to convince the police and then a judge that she needed to be committed to the asylum. One of the ways that she did that was to affect to speak Spanish. That's an example of how easy it was to cross that divide from the person who was assumed to be normal and the person who was assumed to need to be in this prison-like place. She actually says very early in her Insane Asylum expose that she wrote after she got out that I had very little acquaintance with the struggling poor and I had very little acquaintance with the mentally ill, (laughs) but I just had to kind of make it up as I went along. And I realized that these people were just like me. Nellie Bly, Around the World in 72 Days and Other Writings, released this year in honor of her 150th birthday and edited by Jean Lutz, who's joining us. It's one of the things that she's best known for, but I think most folks, like we were saying, don't know the details. They assume maybe that she was a very well-established investigative reporter at the time. This was her first big story, right? She was trying to get a job as a reporter, and she was failing. Editors refused to consider hiring a woman. And finally, in desperation, she went to the New York World office, kind of sneaked past the front desk and got an interview with the managing editor. And she offered 
to go to Europe and return steerage class to write about the experience of immigrants who were coming to the United States in record numbers at that time. And he said, oh, no, that's way too far flung. But he said, you could do this instead. Why don't you try to get into this insane asylum? And she said, yes, right away. He told her later, too. He never expected that she would say yes. He was trying to get rid of her. (laughs) Wow. I love that resilience. (laughs) (laughs) Having been familiar with Nellie Bly's story since you were a child, did it give you more gumption, do you think, going forward in your own career as a writer? I hope so. I was never as brave as Nellie Bly, and I would never be as comfortable being the center of attention, which obviously she thrived on. So in that sense, I couldn't follow her path. I started out as a newspaper reporter when I didn't have to fight to get myself taken seriously in the same way that Bly did in the 1880s. So I was lucky (laughs) in that way. I still think today that women don't have enough confidence in their abilities to succeed professionally. And Bly was a great inspiration in that way. When you talk about confidence, that's something I can relate to a lot, I think, because especially with journalism, you have to become the expert about whatever it is. We have to sort of give ourselves that authority regardless of how much we knew about it initially. And you can totally see that in Nellie and her story, too. She's not intimidated by experts at all. From the very beginning, she mocks insanity experts. She says, the more sanely I behaved, the crazier they thought I was. Editing this collection of work, what did you discover or rediscover about her in that process that surprised you most? Bly was a reality journalist more than a century before reality television or anything like that was ever invented. She wrote a whole lot of her journalism in the 1880s. I realized that she did a lot of her best-known work when she was in her 20s. Her youth and relative inexperience coupled with her confidence made her career. She is known for her stunts, for the insane asylum escapade, for the elephant trainer, ballet dancer, prize fighter, all these kind of performative stunts, and for, of course, racing around the world, which she did. Nelly Bly, Nelly Bly, Some of her writing can be considered a little bit sensational. Yes. (laughs) You know, there is a little bit of sort of ethical gray area about the whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Bly was trying to get into the newspaper business at a time when Joseph Pulitzer was turning the New York world into this un 
unprecedentedly popular newspaper that reached out to a huge number of readers that had never really been reached before. Newly arrived immigrants, people who were barely literate. Also, not coincidentally, women, female readers were incredibly important at this time because newspapers knew that advertisers wanted to reach female readers because women bought so many things for their homes. Women were the primary purchasers in households. So all of those things in some ways drove what we would call sensational journalism, I think. Bly can be dismissed and has been as a sensational writer, as someone who traded on bravery and what I think is often in a diminishing way called her pluck (laughs) instead of intelligent inquiry into serious subjects. That sounds like a gendered word, doesn't it? I've never heard anyone say a man had pluck. Oh, no, it's totally. In fact, I'm sure that the kid's biography I read of Bly called her plucky. No, no, it's only a girl word. So that's why I think we have to call her brave instead. Pluck sounds, it just sounds kind of silly. Yes, it certainly, it makes me think of chickens. It really does. It does, does. right, right. It's it's a chicken word. (laughs) It's totally true. Really, I didn't find any evidence that Bly ever manufactured facts. What she did was insert herself into situations, and she always, always believed that what she was feeling at the time was worth reporting. So in that sense, sensational for her was literally sensation. Like, what are my sensations? Am I hot? Am I cold? Is someone being nice to me? Is someone being rude to me? And that, to me, is what her sensational journalism was. You've got to love someone who looks at a fictional record like Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days and decides, I'm going to beat it. You can read that story and many others in the new collection edited by Jean Lutz, Around the World in 72 Days, and other writings. Bly's work inspired not just journalists and academics, but also musicians. The jazz you heard in that segment is from the Nellie Bly Project by Samantha Boschnack. She's a composer and trumpeter living in Seattle. There's a link to a video where Samantha talks about how Bly inspired her music at nerdatpodcast.com. You also heard the University of Louisville's Cardinal Singers performing Stephen Foster's classic Nellie Bly and the Deedle Deedle Dees on the streets of New York. Not everyone is as comfortable in the spotlight as Nellie Bly, but that doesn't mean they didn't leave their mark. Georgia O'Keeffe kept out of the public eye most of the time. Our pal and Nerdat contributor Lauren Chuljan took a road trip to find out more about the mother of American modernism. Hey, Lauren. Hey, guys. So I went up to the Milwaukee Art Museum because they have one of the largest O'Keeffe collections around. I wanted to know more about what she was really like as a person beyond the paintings. And I found two lovely people in Milwaukee who could speak to that. One is Barbara Brownlee. She's chief educator emeritus at the museum, which essentially means she retired and kept working. She gave Miss O'Keefe a tour of the museum back in 1975. And Barbara says meeting her, even just that one time, was almost a religious experience. And then she later visited O'Keefe's home in New Mexico, known as Abiquiu. I also met Ray Kruger, who's chairman of the board at the museum, and he's actually a member of Miss O'Keefe's family. So I went and visited them in their O'Keefe collection in this beautiful gallery of all Miss O'Keefe's works. There are about 25 of them on display. And it was pretty astounding to be surrounded by paintings like poppies, things that people know, and then more of her abstract works that people don't. When Miss O'Keefe walked into a room, there was silence. And she just had this majesty about her, and you couldn't put your finger on it. George O'Keefe is my grandmother's sister. Growing up, you're not so impressed with the artist's side. I knew her more as uh, a person than as an artist. She was a great storyteller, and she had a wicked sense of humor. 
she did not like crowds. And you know, with a lady like Miss O'Keefe, people want to touch her. They want to kiss her. They want to hug her. And so I was given the assignment to stay by her side, to make sure she was comfortable, and to keep people away from her. And believe me, I had to. It was fun, but um, it was serious. And then we would go to lunch, and we wouldn't talk at lunch because she had heard enough <laughs> enough of that. She was at times a formidable figure, but I think she had to protect her privacy in order to engage in her art the way she wanted to. She, she painted for herself. She didn't paint for the rest of the world out there. If she had, she wouldn't have made it because most of the rest of the world at that time, it was run by men who didn't believe that women really had a place in the art world. And she didn't make a big deal of it. She simply proved them to be wrong. She was kind of a, a, a very special icon, and I think being a woman what made it even more exciting because how many, I mean, how many women painters were you able, was I able to study when I was in college? It was hard, and she was my hero. There were role models that she grew up with. The, uh, the mother and father were equals, and, and so she grew up with this sense that everybody has a role and they're all important. So she grew up with the sense that just about anything was possible, and I think that helped her and enabled her to go ahead in life and do things that uh, others might hesitate to, to even try. The art world is a fickle place, very fickle place. Trends come and go, and it's always been interesting to me is how O'Keefe stuck to what she could do extraordinarily well, notwithstanding a lot of these other influences and, and the genre of art that came and went. And she kept at it until she died. She was uh, when she lost her eyesight, she was doing pottery, and she was creating with her hands uh, in a way that her, her eyes would not permit. She let me kiss her on the cheek when she left. She said, Barbara, you may kiss me. <laughs> it was so cute. And I said, thank you, and I will. And uh, I told her that it was one of the highlights, and I'm sure it will be for my whole life. And I've met a lot of artists and a lot of people, but she was special. And uh, there was a mystical magic about her. This is Nerdette. Thanks to Lauren Chuljan for introducing us to Georgia O'Keeffe's biggest fan, Barbara Brown Lee, and to the painter's great-nephew, Ray Kruger. If you're ever in Milwaukee, check out the O'Keeffe collection at the Milwaukee Art Museum. There are more than 20 of her pieces there, including paintings you've probably only seen in your AP Art History textbook, like Poppies, and some of her more obscure work, too. Still to come on Nerdette, we get to know women who took their fight for equality to the stage and screen. Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. We are Nerdette, and we are here to tell you the stories of great lady nerds of American history. Ruth Feldstein is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and author of the book How It Feels to Be Free, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. She tells us that for many black female performers, jazz and politics were two sides of the same coin. I look at women entertainers who were involved in different ways in the civil rights movement, starting with Lena Horne and then moving on to 
singers Nina Simone, Abby Lincoln, who was a jazz singer and also appeared in several films. Elegant boy, beautiful girl, dancing for joy, delicate world, shades of delight, cocoa you rich as the night, Afro Mary McCabe, who's a South African singer who was in the United States for 10 years, from the late 50s into the late 60s. Actresses, Cecily Tyson and Diane Carroll. Be here at 9, and make yourself as handsome as you can manage. I'm tired of looking at ugly nurses. I married one. I'll do my best, sir. But has Mr. Colton told you? Tell me what. I'm colored. What color are you? I'm a Negro. You always been a Negro, or you're just trying to be fashionable? <laughs> Nine o'clock, try and be pretty. Part of why I think it's important to look at women entertainers is because a lot of Americans engage with the civil rights movement, not just through traditional politics, or what I call politics with a capital P. They didn't go to boycotts. They didn't go to marches. They weren't involved in agitating for any kind of specific legislation. But they did listen to certain music or go to certain movies or watch certain television shows, and that was the way that they made sense of the civil rights movement. So these women, I argue, are performing civil rights through their cultural work, and we need to think about them as being activist entertainers. Nina Simone, for example, she performed at small clubs as well as at Carnegie Hall, but she didn't do a lot of television work. I think she was seen as a little bit too provocative, a little too unconventional, a little too radical in her politics. Nina Simone wrote one of her most famous songs a month after the March on Washington, and that's Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn And she suggests a very different kind of politics in terms of the kind of racial activism she's talking about and a very different kind of gender politics in the ways that she performs as a black woman. She wrote it in September of 1963. She had just heard about that terrible church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. The Ku Klux Klan planted a bomb and four young girls were killed. Can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. And Nina Simone says that she heard about that bombing and she immediately went out and wrote this song. She said it came to her, there's a quote from her, a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. And in the song Mississippi Goddamn, she really rejects the ethos of going slow. Picket line, schoolboy cops. They try to say it's a communist plot, but all I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. And remember, the title of the song is Mississippi Goddamn. She puts that damn right in the title. She's saying, I don't have to behave like a lady to get my rights. I can be angry. So she's really taking this moment, this March on Washington moment, and turning it on its head and really challenging the conventional wisdom about interracial activism in that moment.
women had to try lots of different venues and different kinds of genres to build their careers. In the period where their careers were really taking off in the late 50s, there was this booming post-war cultural industry alongside a really vital political subcultures, too. Nina Simone really said it best. She's describing the Village Gate in that period, which is a jazz club, she said, where, and I'm quoting her, politics was mixed in with so much of what went on that I remember it now as two sides of the same coin, politics and jazz. Wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all chains still binding me. Wish I could say all the things that I can say when I'm relaxed. We have links to videos of some of these performances, including that one by Nina Simone, and a Spotify playlist of all the music featured in the book How It Feels to Be Free Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement by Ruth Feldstein. You can find that at nerdatpodcast.com. Don't leave me. Your homework this week is to call us and tell us great lady nerds of history that you want us to feature. Call us and leave us a message, 312-600-5638. Also, you should join the ranks of the best nerds ever who leave us voicemails of their nerd confessions. Hello, Nerdette. This is Pirate Jenny calling with my nerd confession. My partner and I have always had bull mastiffs, and they have always had Klingon names because bull mastiffs are very loyal and have really strong opinions about what is honorable. They also have really cute wrinkly foreheads. Their names are Chidich, Targ, Tarmakai, and Stobacor, and all of their training commands are in Klingon, which makes for really interesting conversations at dog shows. That's my nerd confession. Kapla! Pirate Jenny, we love you. We want to go to the dog park with you and shout Klingon commands at your beautiful bull mastiff dogs. <laughs> Thanks to Jean Lutz and Ruth Feldstein and the folks at the Milwaukee Art Museum for talking with us. And to Lauren Children for taking a road trip to get to know a great lady nerd of history. You can subscribe to our weekly conversations with nerds of all stripes at wbez.org slash podcasts. Nerda is produced by us. Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. Joe Dassault is our Starfleet commander. So say we all. So say we all. With additional production assistance from Lauren Chulgin and the amazing interns, Iris and Patrick. Thanks also to the phenomenal Denise Kiernan. She knows what she did. Our home stations are WBEZ and WCQS. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening. You can find almost 50 episodes of Nerdette. Lots more interviews and stories by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you like hearing from nerds of all stripes on Nerdette, give us some stars on iTunes. Get it? Stars and stripes. Because America. America! Thanks for the kind words on iTunes from Semi-Bold and Moose Dog 34. You think it is Semi-Bold or Semi-Bold? <laughs> right? I don't know. <laughs> Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max 
and listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.